Well, being a close advisor to the king can be very dangerous business. Uh, Thomas Cromwell served as Henry VIII's advisor from 1532 to 1540. And Henry had this problem, right? He, he wanted to divorce Catherine of Aragon and he wanted to marry Anne Boleyn. But since they were Catholic and they were under the Pope's authority, uh, the Pope wouldn't grant that divorce, and so he was unable uh, to get his wish. Uh, so Cromwell, his right-hand man, figured out a way. He said, all you have to do is remove the Pope's power from England, and then you'll be free to do whatever you want. And so uh, Cromwell persuaded Parliament to pass the Act of Supremacy that established the Church of England and made Henry its head, right? Very convenient, very brilliant, well done move by Cromwell. Uh, along with that, he also disbanded the monasteries. Uh, he got rid of paying taxes to the church in Rome, uh, essentially removing Catholicism from England uh, and establishing a, a, a free sovereign England English state uh, free from uh, the Pope's interference. Uh, and so uh, from Henry's perspective, this is a brilliant move, right? And, and Cromwell's star, of course, was on the rise as a result. Uh, but the marriage to Anne Boleyn imploded when she could not bear a male heir, and uh, rumors of infidelity and unfaithfulness began to circulate throughout the empire. So Anne Boleyn ended up in the Tower of London, where bad things happen to you. Uh, and after Anne Boleyn was executed, uh, he married a woman by the name of Jane Seymour. Jane Seymour died of natural causes, which didn't happen often to Henry's wives. Uh, and then after that happened, uh, Cromwell talked um, Henry VIII into marrying a woman by the name of Anne of Cleves. Now, Henry had not met Anne of Cleves, uh, but Cromwell had a portrait of her painted and shown to Henry, uh, and apparently the portrait uh, was vastly over-exaggerating her beauty. <laughs> and so when Henry actually met Anne of Cleves, he was repulsed by her appearance, uh, did not want to go forward with the marriage, uh, but he was talked into it. He went through with the marriage anyway, uh, but that was the beginning of the end for Cromwell. Henry's trust and confidence in Cromwell uh, began to wane. And of course, Cromwell's enemies seized upon this opportunity uh, to further poison Henry against uh, Cromwell. And so uh, Henry becomes increasingly convinced that uh, Cromwell is, is uh, up to no good and conspiring against him. So uh, Henry ordered him executed at the Tower of London as well. And so here's a plaque commemorating some of the uh, people who had been executed in the Tower of London by some of the sovereigns. There's Thomas Cromwell, just second on the list there. Uh, but we learn that kings can be very paranoid. They can be very fickle uh, people. Uh, and so it's dangerous business to trifle in the affairs of the king. And speaking of trifling in the affairs of the king, as we come to Nehemiah 2, that's exactly what Nehemiah was about to do. Uh, and it was dangerous work. In chapter 1, remember that it was revealed to Nehemiah uh, by his brother that the walls in the city of Jerusalem were in terrible condition. And Nehemiah began to pray about it. And last week we said that people of action must first be people of prayer. Uh, and so Nehemiah had prayed, and now in chapter 2, it's time for action. So Nehemiah was taking a great risk, and we read about that in just verses 1 to 3, that Nehemiah appeared sad in front of the king. And we'll talk about what that means. Now, uh, it's the month of Nisan now. Uh, Nisan is, is March 
April on our calendars, uh, which is about four months after the month of Kislev, which was when chapter uh, one took place. Uh, that's about the month of December for us. So for four months between December and April, uh, Nehemiah had been praying, uh, fasting, imploring God to give him a, a vision and a plan to help with this dire situation that existed in Jerusalem. And after Nehemiah had bathed his burden in prayer, now for some reason, whatever, this it was the day that Nehemiah decided was the day for action. So wine was set before the king. Uh, Nehemiah tasted the wine before it was presented to, to uh, the king, and so Nehemiah hands the goblet to Artaxerxes. But Artaxerxes can tell that there is something different going on today. Uh, Nehemiah appears to be sad. And so uh, it was no little thing to be sad in front of the king because uh, kings, especially kings of Persia, uh, thought uh, just being in their presence was, was the, 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 all he ever needed to be happy and glad was to be among uh, the king's people and to be in the king's presence. Uh, and so to be sad in the king's presence could very well be deemed an insult to the king, and it's not wise to insult the king. So Artaxerxes asks Nehemiah, why are you sad even though you are sick? or not sick. And so Nehemiah at that moment could have changed the expression on his face, right? He could have, you know, fluffed it off as nothing and immediately put a smile on his face and went back to serving the king. And it's hard for us to comprehend uh, the tension, the conflict that's going on in Nehemiah's heart and Nehemiah's mind at this moment. I'm reminded of the, the tension that we saw in the book of Esther. Uh, when, when Esther prepares the banquet for Xerxes and Haman, uh, and, and uh, Xerxes asks, what is your request? And, and that's the moment where Esther has to spit it out. He has to, she has to say, uh, this wicked man, Haman, is conspiring against us uh, to kill my people. Uh, but she didn't have the courage for that particular night. So she, she said, uh, let me prepare another banquet and you come uh, tomorrow night and I'll tell you my request. And then she prayed and, and she mustered up the courage. And on, on the next night, uh, she was able to tell uh, King Xerxes what was going on, that Haman was trying to destroy his people or her people. But her very life was on the line and, and she understood that. And that was why there was so much tension and conflict and stress within her. And that's the same reason why it says here that Nehemiah was very much afraid. Because if he spoke anything that offended King Artaxerxes, he could very well be killed. And so what a moment of truth this was. What a moment uh, it took for Nehemiah to display the courage that was in his heart. But Nehemiah had gone this far with God, and he wasn't about to turn back now, even though he risked his own life. So his response to Artaxerxes shows that I am all in. I'm all in on this deal. I trust you, God, and I'm, I'm going to go forward. He's been praying about it now for four months, and now it was time to trust God. But still, Nehemiah was wise to address Artaxerxes very tactfully. Uh, remember, this is the same Artaxerxes who had already issued a decree uh, stopping the work in Jerusalem only a few years ago. At that time, uh, Israel's enemies had sent a letter to Artaxerxes saying, if you let this city be rebuilt, this is a rebellious city historically, and this is going to be a thorn in your side for years to come. So the rebuilding of Jerusalem was actually a political issue uh, because this might be deemed to be somebody that, uh, or the city might be deemed to be one that Artaxerxes was going to have to deal with in a political sense uh, later on. 
And we know from history that Artaxerxes had other trouble in that region, uh, in Syria, in Egypt. Uh, there were setbacks that Artaxerxes suffered at that time. So uh, he might have thought that Nehemiah was siding with the rebels and trying to conspire behind his back to build up Jerusalem to be another thorn in his side. And so we see clearly from a political standpoint that Nehemiah was trifling in the affairs of the king. And that is dangerous business. And so as Nehemiah makes his request, he never mentions the city of Jerusalem by name because Jerusalem itself, the word, might be a hot-button issue for Artaxerxes. So he said, the land of my father's tombs is desolate, which is interesting because the Persians had a very high view of the dead. So appealing to the father's tombs would have struck a chord with Artaxerxes that perhaps just mentioning the city of Jerusalem would not have. He says, the, the city is desolate. The gates have been destroyed by fire. Well, there it is, right? It's out of his mouth. Uh, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And so it's out on the table. And, and you know, consequences, whatever they uh, were, they were going to happen at this point in time. So he, uh, by saying the things that he said, he put his life in Artaxerxes' hands. But more importantly, he put his life in God's hands, right? He put his life in God's hands. Because Nehemiah trusted uh, God with the outcome, no matter what it would be. And so that's something that we have to think about ourselves. When, when we face a decision, a very difficult decision, uh, we have to ask whether we really do trust God in all circumstances. Uh, when we get a bad report from the doctor, when we're having some relationship issue, uh, when we've had a financial downturn, uh, when God is calling us to do something that might cost us uh, a lot of money or, or a relationship or, or a job, uh, do we really, really trust God with the outcome? And the proof will be in the pudding. It'll be whether we go forward and walk in faith and in trust. Uh, and how we live our lives shows whether we really trust him or not. Uh, Nehemiah clearly did, but I'm still sure that he was holding his breath, waiting to see what Artaxerxes would say in response to Nehemiah's words. Well, let's see what Artaxerxes said. The king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, I request that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me, for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, so that they will allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. So Nehemiah's request is multi-pronged, as we can see, right? The first prong is not getting yourself killed. That's the first key to the rest of them. Uh, we have to survive the request to, Nehemiah, to uh, Artaxerxes. And so the king asked Nehemiah what his request was, and that's a pretty good start, right? So far, so good. He didn't get sent to the gallows. Uh, he was, uh, he was, had favor in Artaxerxes' eyes, apparently. So uh, Nehemiah, though, we see throughout, is a man with a plan, right? He hadn't thought or hadn't uh, waited until this specific moment to think, oh, well, you know, I haven't really thought about what I need yet. He had thought it well through. He'd been praying about this for many months, and God showed him what he would need. 
And so when Artaxerxes asked Nehemiah's request, Nehemiah was able to be quite specific with him because God was, had been clear to Nehemiah over these months of prayer. And so as Nehemiah is about to make his request, he breathes one final prayer to God uh, before he makes the request. And then he speaks uh, very tactfully and respectfully to Artaxerxes. If it pleases the king is an address that we see only in Esther and Nehemiah. So this is probably the way that people addressed the kings of Persia at the time. If it pleases the king, uh, that's probably the custom of the time. And then Nehemiah asks Artaxerxes to deprive himself of Nehemiah's services for a, a, a length of time. You know, it's an 800-mile trek from Susa, where he was, to Judah. He's got to do his work in Jerusalem and then get back to Susa again. So he was going to be gone for a while. Uh, and Artaxerxes asked for a definite schedule, which Nehemiah was able to give him. And things seem to be going well. So Nehemiah pushed the envelope a little further. He says, King Artaxerxes, I'm going to need some letters uh, so that people will receive me in Judah. And I'm going to need uh, letters when I get beyond the river. Uh, that's the Euphrates River. You can see the, the, the river there on, the, on your left side. Uh, the big river that they need to cross in order to get to uh, the land of Judah. And so he wants letters for the governors, for the people beyond the river. And uh, he also wants uh, to have letters for the keeper of the king's forest, who he knows by name, which probably would take some research. This man's name was Asaph. And so he, he needed wood, timber, for the rebuilding of the gates and the walls and asked uh, that, that Artaxerxes would write this man, Asaph, a letter by name uh, and asking for provision from the forest. So, so many things would have to go well for Nehemiah to have success in this thing. There were many prongs, many layers to this request. And so from a human perspective, we assume that Artaxerxes must really have liked Nehemiah personally. And politically, maybe Artaxerxes was thinking, well, maybe a rebuilt Jerusalem uh, with Nehemiah in charge of it would be a strong ally in that uh, uh, tumultuous region of the world. Uh, so maybe that's why he uh, was eager to grant the request. But we can't miss the parallels here between the book of Esther and the book of Nehemiah uh, and the providence of God that is at work here, right? We, we might say from a human perspective, it's political or maybe he likes him, but from, from a, a, a divine standpoint, it's obvious that God is orchestrating the events, fulfilling prophecies uh, to allow the exiles to return from Babylon, now Persia, uh, to the city of Jerusalem and rebuild it. Remember last week in chapter 1, the last verse of chapter 1 says that Nehemiah was praying to the Lord, asking that he might grant him success before this man and mercy. And here we see the answer to that prayer. God gives mercy and grants him success before Artaxerxes. Uh, God answered Nehemiah's prayer in every way possible. And Nehemiah goes on to say at the end of this, uh, in, in verse 8, the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. And that's something. Uh, answered prayer. And Nehemiah on his knees and God answering when uh, the man of God and God's will coincide. Now, God was doing even something beyond what I think Nehemiah could ever have thought at, at this particular time. God was beginning to fulfill the extremely important prophecy of Daniel about when the Christ would come and what would happen to him, the time frame of his coming and his rejection on the cross. In Daniel chapter 9, uh, that's a big uh, section of prophecy about uh, when the Lord would come. 9, 25, and 26 say this, So you are to know... And understand that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's the very decree we're talking about here from Artaxerxes, 
until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will, be, it will be built again with streets and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. So thinking about this prophecy, each one of Daniel's weeks represents seven years. So seven weeks and 62 weeks equals 69 weeks or 483 years. The clock started running with the decree uh, that Artaxerxes issued to restore and rebuild. 483 years on the Jewish calendar equals exactly 173,880 days. And many scholars have calculated that it was exactly that many days from Artaxerxes' decree uh, to the moment of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem uh, in A.D. 30 or 33, uh, depending on uh, the, the counting. Uh, and so what happens is that he presents himself there as Israel's Messiah at the triumphal entry, exactly fulfilling the time period of Daniel 9.25 and 9.26. And then a few days later, he was rejected and killed, fulfilling the prophecy that he would be cut off and have nothing. So that's the first 69 weeks of Daniel. The 70th week is the tribulation week, which will be, filled, be fulfilled sometime in the future, just preceding Jesus' second coming. So when I read this stuff, I am just amazed, blown away by the accuracy of the Bible. And I hope that when you read stuff like this, uh, just God's ability to, to speak and then to fulfill to the day uh, is just so mind-boggling and gives us such confidence in the Bible. And it does to me. I hope it does to you too. Well, I think that all of this stuff was probably beyond Nehemiah's knowledge at this point. He was just happy not to have his head chopped off or end up on the gallows or something like that. He wanted to get his letters and get on his way. And so that's what he did. And he would certainly need these letters because Nehemiah was going to meet resistance. Uh, verses 9 and 10, Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the Euphrates River and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen, and when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So Nehemiah's journey would have taken a few months. Uh, he traveled with armies uh, of the, or officers of the army and horsemen. And so you would think that that, plus the letters that Artaxerxes gave him, ought to ensure his safe passage and that perhaps the red carpet would be rolled out for him on his way. Uh, but that wasn't the case because Satan was not allowed or about to allow uh, Nehemiah to have success in this matter without a fight. And so the author introduces us now to Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. And most likely, these two were both Jews from what we know from history. Uh, a document was found by archaeologists uh, among a collection called the Elephantine Papyri, which were written in about 407 BC, which is about 38 years after the events of this chapter here, that mentioned Sanballat and called him the governor of Samaria. And so he was likely from Beth Haran, which is a village just northwest of Jerusalem. Uh, and so this is a, an actual person, uh, documented by history, who was the governor of Samaria, an important person, obviously. And the Jewish name Tobiah uh, was a family name, uh, and it was uh, uh, held by the people uh, in a village or a, a territory called Ammon, which is south of Jerusalem. Uh, and nine generations of people carried this name Tobiah. So that was a very prominent and powerful family in the region of Ammon. So you would think that these two, who are probably both Jews, would be very much in favor of what Nehemiah was wanting to do, right? To come and rebuild the city, build the walls of Jerusalem, make Jerusalem powerful again. 
But you would also think that the Pharisees, when they saw Jesus, would recognize their Messiah and receive him, right? But it doesn't always work that way because people want to maintain the power that they have. And so the Pharisees rejected Jesus to maintain their power. And it seems that Sanballat and Tobiah were probably trying to gain control of Judah, and somehow Nehemiah appears as a rival. And so they continue to antagonize Nehemiah throughout this rebuilding project. Now, God obviously is involved in the events, right? He's, he's behind the orchestration of events that are leading Nehemiah to Jerusalem. And he's also sovereign over the antagonism that Nehemiah is going to face. So we wonder about that, right? God is sovereign, and nothing happens that he doesn't allow. Uh, Satan had to uh, ask God's permission to torture Job. He had to ask permission to sift Peter like wheat. And so God allowed those things, and he also allows the opposition that he, that he allowed Nehemiah to face for his own purposes. God was with Nehemiah, but he didn't promise that it was going to be easy. So when you and I feel like we're being faithful to God, when, when we're walking in the steps that God has given us, uh, and, and when we're, we feel like we're answering his calling, and then we run into obstacles or opposition, uh, we think about, God, what are you up to? Why have you made this so difficult? Well, I think we have to remember two things. And one is that Satan does not want us to succeed, right? He wants to do everything in his power to stop us from having the success that we would like to have. But the second thing we have to remember is that God is allowing this thing for his own purposes uh, to develop us, to make us more Christ-like, and to ultimately bring him more glory. So when we run into obstacles, when we run into opposition, it's not that we're not doing God's will. It's that God is working through the circumstances to bring himself more glory and to make us more Christ-like. And if God has called us to it, we have to persevere despite the opposition and the obstacles. And Nehemiah is certainly going to have some of those. So let's see what Nehemiah does when he gets to Jerusalem. 11 to 16, so I came to Jerusalem and was there for three days. And I got up in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except for the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon spring and onto the dung gate. And I was inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates, which had been consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I was going up at night by the ravine and inspecting the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. However, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who were doing the work. So Nehemiah displayed finesse and he displayed tact when he was talking to Artaxerxes. And here he shows a keen sense of timing about when and how to reveal his plans. Nehemiah had been in Jerusalem for three days already, and he had surveyed the city, but he didn't tell anybody that what he had in mind. Well, why? Why was he keeping this secret? Well, I think it's because he knew that Israel had enemies like Sanballat and Tobiah who were watching him and were trying to figure out what he was up to. Uh, the report from his brother told him that, yes, the city is in ruins, but Nehemiah needed to see it with his own eyes and so that he could fine-tune his plans. It's no good to leak out a little bit of your plan and start to raise concern among your enemies before you're actually ready to act, and that might have been dangerous to Nehemiah. 
So he's got this other plan. He's going to survey the city, and then he's going to fine-tune his plan and reveal it. This is a sketch of what uh, the walls of the city may have looked like at the time. You see that valley gate uh, over in this part. Uh, that is where Nehemiah left the city, and then he traveled south, uh, walked past the dung gate to the fountain gate. Then he got to the part where there was so much rubble from the destruction of uh, the temple by Nebuchadnezzar a few years back that he couldn't pass, so he turned around, uh, entered in through the valley gate again, back into the city again. So uh, that is what he had what he'd done. Uh, and so now having seen it himself, now having surveyed the damage with his own eyes, now he's ready to reveal his plans to his fellow countrymen. And he does that in verses 17 to 20. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates have been burned by fire. Come, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a disgrace. And I told them how the hand of, the, of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's word, which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let's arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you were doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will make us successful. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no part, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. So now, after Nehemiah has made his plans, seen the damage, now he's ready to rally the troops. And Nehemiah inspired the people by sharing his vision for Jerusalem. Now, this city of Jerusalem, not only was it vulnerable to enemies because it had no walls, but a city without walls was a disgrace and Jerusalem should not be a city of disgrace. And so he encouraged them by appealing to their sense of pride and nationalism for their city. And then he confirmed his vision by telling them exactly how God had answered his prayer by dealing with King Artaxerxes. Now, I imagine that they treated Nehemiah like a rock star, right? I mean, this is the cupbearer to the king. This is no peasant, right? This is man, an important man in Artaxerxes' administration. Uh, so they treated him well, and at the same time, they must have also had great respect for this man, considering where he had come from, the position that he held, all that he risked in talking to Artaxerxes, and all that he gave up in coming to rebuild the city. So they all agreed to arise and rebuild, and they put their good hands to the work. Now, immediately, they faced opposition, right, from Sanballat, Tobiah, and now a third man uh, comes on the scene mentioned here, Geshem the Arab. Now, we do know something about Geshem, Geshem the Arab from archaeology as well. There's evidence that he was an even more powerful man than the other two. Uh, archaeologists have found a vessel with his name inscribed on it in which he is called the King of Kedar, Q-E-D-A-R or K-E-D-A-R, depending on the spelling. Uh, he was, uh, confirmed by other sources, he and his son ruled an Arabian uh, League of Nations which took control of Moab and Edom. So uh, this is Jerusalem right up in here. This is all Moab and Edom uh, south of Jerusalem. And these are, this is the area that uh, this man Geshem apparently was in, in uh, control of. And so he's got some powerful enemies, Nehemiah. And yet uh, it's true that the archaeology that we found proves the Bible again. And Nehemiah wasn't afraid of these people. Uh, these words that we see uh, that where they mocked and despised us shows that these three did everything in their power to stop this work from happening and to discourage the Jews from building. But Nehemiah 
Nehemiah was up to the challenge. He didn't trust in himself or his power. He said, the God of heaven, this is the God, Yahweh, who will make them successful. They would arise and build, but you, uh, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, you will have no part in Jerusalem. And so it's very easy to see now. The battle lines have been drawn. You have Nehemiah and his camp. You have Sanballat and his camp. Uh, Israel's enemies would oppose them throughout the building project. Now, speaking of battle lines, uh, throughout history, since the coming of Jesus, uh, there have been battle lines drawn between those who will receive Jesus and those who will not receive Jesus and who oppose him. And Jesus himself said that I come to bring division. His life was filled with conflict uh, with those who opposed him. And he seemed to lose the battle when his enemies managed to have him crucified on a cross. But then he turned the tables on them at his glorious resurrection. And since then, the only question that matters eternally is, whose side are you on? Did you receive Jesus or did you reject and oppose him? And the question that God will ask us when we stand before him one day is, what did you do with my son Jesus? That's the only question that he's going to ask, and that's the eternally important question that we better answer right. We receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. All right, let's finish with some applications. Here's the first one. If you have prayed, be courageous and act. What decision are you facing now? You have a decision? What's weighing on your heart right now? Or how has the Holy Spirit inspired you to step out in faith to, to accomplish something, to try something great for the Lord? Uh, has God been speaking to you? Uh, if so, what fears are holding you back? What are the things that you are afraid of? Follow Nehemiah's formula. Nehemiah was first a man of prayer, and then he was a man of action. But when it was time to act, he did not hesitate, right? Uh, so if you've bathed it in prayer, and if you feel the Holy Spirit is leading you, and if you think that this thing that you are thinking about, planning about, deciding about is from God, well, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Be courageous and act. God gave you that vision, and he will lead you in it. But that's not to say it won't, it'll, it'll be easy or that there won't be obstacles, right? That's not to say that at all. There will be obstacles. Uh, but in, it's in the obstacles that we continue to show that we trust God and that we are going to rely on him. And we're allowing him to handle the things that only he can while we are faithful with the things that we can be a part of. And so that's the kind of leader that Nehemiah was. And that's the kind of leader we should all aspire to be. Prayerful, fearless, people of action for the Lord. So if you've prayed, be courageous and act. Second, God's grace comes in the moment of greatest need. You know, Nehemiah had prayed and waited for opportunity, but he couldn't be sure of God's grace until he actually took the leap of faith, right? Until he actually looked sad in front of, ne of Artaxerxes and then stated his request. And so this was Nehemiah's moment of greatest need, and God showed up big time. You know, it would be nice for us when we're in a moment of indecision or in, in a moment of crisis if God would just part the clouds and speak audibly to us, right? But he, he doesn't work that way. Uh, he's, he's asking us to take a leap of faith. And what we learn from Nehemiah is that God is waiting to catch us when we make that leap of faith. We step out and there is God waiting to hold us up. So he provides grace not before we need it, but exactly when we need it. God's grace comes in the moment of greatest need. And finally, share your testimony with others. 
You know, Jerusalem had been in ruins for years. The people had become apathetic towards it. It was just there. They weren't paying any attention to it whatsoever. Uh, and suddenly, uh, Nehemiah comes along, a man with a vision, a man with a plan, a man with a testimony, and suddenly the people were inspired to build. Well, what happened? Well, what happened was that Nehemiah convinced them that the hand of God was on him and on this plan, and that God was in it with them. Nehemiah said, look at the distress we are in, not the distress you are in. Nehemiah made himself among the people, uh, and he was in distress as well. So we should never underestimate the power of our testimony. Uh, you know, God has drawn each one of us, you and me, to him in a supernatural way. And I say supernatural because it's not natural for us, any of us, in our sinful state to want to surrender to God, to, to give our lives to him and to rely on what he's done for salvation. We want to do things our way. And so how God called you, how God has drawn you into his family is exactly what somebody else may need to hear, to, to listen, to, to, to receive the gospel for the first time. Uh, Nehemiah's testimony to the people was powerful, and our testimony is powerful too, if we'll only have the courage to share it. You know, I started out this sermon talking about Thomas Cromwell. Uh, and you know what, what made his outcome different from Nehemiah's was one, uh, that he was encouraging uh, the king to do something that was not in God's plan, right? To get divorced. And the second thing was that he was playing politics, which is a very dangerous business. So the difference between Cromwell's outcome and Nehemiah's is that uh, Nehemiah's outcome was bathed in prayer uh, while uh, Cromwell's was bathed in politics. And, and these are dangerous things uh, when we get involved in politics uh, too much because God doesn't play politics, but he does hear the person who is committed to doing his will and advancing his kingdom like Nehemiah was. So pray, be courageous, and act. God will give you the grace exactly when you need it. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this testimony of Nehemiah, uh, who shows us that we're not always called to a life of comfort and convenience, Lord, but of action sometimes. And Lord, we just thank you for uh, his pattern of prayer, uh, courage, and action. It shows us what you have for us, Lord. So, Lord, when we come to moments of crisis, indecision, or, or stepping out in faith for you, for something you would like to accomplish through us, Lord, may we pray. May we have the courage to act, Lord, and when it's time, may we take that leap of faith, uh, knowing that you are there uh, with us, Lord, in it, uh, to see it through, to carry us in it, Lord. And Lord, as I think about this message and I think about this chapter, I just keep being drawn back to uh, the moments of, of crisis of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he said, not my will, but thine be done, Lord. And he went forward to the cross, dying for our sins. And so, Lord, we're just so grateful for that. May we be people of courage, like Nehemiah, like Jesus. May we accomplish your will, Lord. We ask you for, uh, for the vision, and Lord, we ask you for the courage to carry it through. And we pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.